your hotel. Hotel, which is a very fine hotel. Very yes. Fine hotel. Welcome. It's all Thank yours. Thank you. The Amelia's Bed and Breakfast. I'm going to give it a very good, good rating on Airbnb. Um, right. Well, let's turn together, shall we, to uh, Genesis chapter 2. Now, just before we read this, a, a recap on, on last night, in case you were not here. We scratched our head and said we'd better kind of all agree on how we're going to use this word identity. And we landed on the notion of identity as the answer we give to the question, who am I? It's, it, it's how we tell our story in, in an effort to answer that question. And it usually is a story. It weaves together different aspects of ourselves, our gender, our nationality, our status, our achievements. So it, 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 it weaves them together to tell our story. This is who I am. But we instinctively look for a plot line, a, something that holds it together, a defining feature of who we are. And we saw that the world tells us to go looking in all kinds of places and stake our sense of linchpin, our, the linchpin or our sense of self on that, my sexuality, my gender, my nationality. And that is who you are. And we tried to see that the gospel um, emancipates us from that and says our identity, our story, the plot line of who we are comes from a different place. It comes from the love of God for his people and the shaping of his people in the image of his son, Jesus. That's our identity in Christ, bearing his image, restored, being restored once again. And so we, we go back just now to Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to look a little further into this story in Genesis. If you remember... In chapter 1, we read together those um, critical verses. Verse 26 in chapter 1, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created human. In his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Okay, so that was the um, scripture we looked at last night. Let's, let's move on a little further in the story now. And we're going to start reading in chapter 2 at verse 21. Chapter 2, verse 21. The Lord God caused the man 
to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. For she was taken out of man. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked. And they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say uh, you must not eat from any tree in the garden and the woman said to the serpent well we may eat from the tr- from the trees in the garden but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die you will not surely die the serpent said to the woman for for God knows That when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of them both were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Well, thank you. That was good, wasn't it? Good reading that. Well, it's, it's great to be here once again. Thank you for turning out on this beautiful Saturday morning. Um, in, in chapter one here of this creation narrative, there's a series of powerful images of God calling the world into being, creating life and energy and beauty, and then at the, at the pivotal point of creation, calling into beings human, male and female bodies, which bear the likeness of God himself on the face of this earth that he's created. We also, in these opening verses in chapter 1, begin to discover something of what the phrase made in the image and likeness of God actually means. Look at verse 28 there. We see that God calls them to bear his image In the world, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea. And I I give you every seed-bearing plant. Now, 
what, what's happening here is, is we see that God calls them to bear his image well. Have authority and governance of, over this world as, as he has authority and governance over all of creation. Be fruitful and bring new life into this world into which he's placed them as he brings new life into creation and calls life out of dust, out of nothing. Multiply, prosper. And so we're seeing that God's bearing God's image for these first humans meant that they were called to make more of the world into which God had placed them. Bearing God's image calls us to make more of the world. And we see this developed in chapter 2 as they're placed in a garden to tend it and to bring the fruit from it and to harvest it and make more of God's wonderful world. And so the point here is that being made in the image and likeness of God isn't an existence It's a calling. It's an identity charged with purpose, with goal, with work. To image God, to be like him, to do like him in in the world that he's made. In our bodies, male and female, to bear the image, the creative power of God into his world. It's a wonderful picture, isn't it? And that, that story gets retold again in chapter 2, except that the, the writer takes a different angled lens now and he zooms right in closer. And he t- retells it from a different point of view. And here the first image-bearing human is placed in a garden to tend it and to make more of what God's given in, in that garden. And they're given authority over the animals, even getting to pick their names. And you have that wonderful little cameo in which God calls human into his godlike authority to name and to order and to govern. And he says, I want you to name and to order and to govern. I want you to pick the names of the animals You see how gently God takes human and introduces him to his calling to bear his image well. And I imagine he says, so what will we call that one? And Adam looks and says, an elephant. He says, why are you calling it an elephant? He says, well, it kind of looks like an elephant. Um, But it's a wonderful image of, I mean, it's a mysterious image in many ways. But what it's saying is that the creator stoops and he gets alongside his, his image on the face of the earth. And together, he learns how to govern and name and bring order to God's world. So these are wonderful stories. But have you noticed how they reach their climax at the end of chapter 2? As, as the writer gets ready to move into the full narrative where the tone now turns darker in chapter 3, have you noticed how he chooses to end chapter 2? It's there, look at the last verse, verse 25. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. That's the climax of the creation narratives. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no 
shame. Now, why end with that? Have you thought about that ever? I mean, it could have been something like the man and his wife were naked and really happy. And that would have been true, wouldn't it? Or the man and his wife were naked and, and, and without fear or anger or sadness or disappointment or regret and all that would have been true as well but he didn't say any of that he said the man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame so what does this mean why do these early chapters of genesis make such a big deal of this phenomenon of shame what is it And what does this have to say to us today? So let me tell you a story about shame. When I was a little guy, about seven or eight, uh, we we took our holidays uh, in Cardiff with a a relative there. Um, And and we, we, we took the train and went to stay with her in their council house on one of what was to become one of the most notorious uh, estates in the whole of Europe, council estates. But it wasn't quite that then. But you can see we lived it up in my childhood. It was five-star all the way as we went to Ely Housing Estate. And I had a cheeky cousin there. Let's call her Dorothy. And, uh, oh, sorry, Sinclair. <laughs> but that's, I just made up that, that name, right? Dorothy was a bit older than I, and uh, I was about seven or eight years. She would come back to my hometown, and they'd have their holidays with us in Grimsby. So you can see the theme continues of, of uh, holidays by, by the beach, five star. And, um, and one day, Dorothy and I, my cheeky cousin Dorothy, um, headed down to the shop. And uh, on an errand, and, and the shop was staffed by Mr. Whiting. That's his real name, I remember it well. And we went in to say hello to Mr. Whiting, and after he'd served us, he was called through into the back, sh- back of, of, of the shop. And, um, and as we made our way out, and he'd gone to the back, I spotted a bag of peanuts there. And um, I dared my cousin to take them, or to take one. Actually, she took two and we ran out of the shop. And um, I'm confessing here, aren't I, to receiving stolen goods. So when we got outside, um, having dared Dorothy when she offered me one, um, rather like Eve is about to do here in chapter 3, I looked at the peanut and I saw that it, quote, was good for food, pleasing to the eye. And I took I ate and we ran on home and with every step the guilt for what I'd done got bigger and bigger and deeper and deeper until we ran into the house and dismayed by the sense of guilt I blurted it out much to the dismay of Dorothy to my father guilt for what I had done the thing I had done complicit to theft and uh, it was at that moment as he looked at me, that my guilt turned to shame. Because that look told me he, it, it wasn't just that, his, that I'd done this wrong thing. The look was that he had a son who did things like that. 
You see, guilt is how we feel about the thing that we have done. Of course, there's objective guilt. But the subjective outfall of that in our hearts is, is, is that feeling of guilt, that, that I have done that wrong thing. Shame is that I'm the kind of person who does things like that. It's much broader. It's much more encompassing. It drags all of our being into it. And it's a physical thing. Because the moment my father looked at me, I just wanted to hide. I, there's somebody I, I chat to at the moment. I'm trying to walk together. And his father's project in life, it seems to me, was to shame his son. And he's battling with that crushing background in his own heart and the shame that that produced. And he just goes red because he has this sense of he'll be seen. He's known for who he is, not good enough. And he just wants to hide and his body reacts. And he goes bright red and blushes. And and sometimes he has to get out, literally. And that's shame. We've been found out for who we are. We're not good enough, not remotely good enough. And everybody can see it, the kind of person you are. And that's why you just want to hide. How do I know that this is the sort of thing that that we're talking about here? Well, look at... Look at chapter 3, what happened. Look at verse 7 there. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and hid themselves from each other. From each other. To hide the parts, their instinct and their shame was to hide the parts that most intensely spoke of their love, passion, their enjoyment of each other, that that made them so vulnerable to each other and open to each other. The trust, the love, and the mutuality that was just found in in their genitality, their, their sexuality. And all of a sudden, that had not just been put at risk, been destroyed because this is a man in a moment in his own shame when God looks will say well the woman he'll try to pin it on this on this woman that God gave him that he said was flesh of my flesh now he tries to pin it on her and they both know this they know that there's been a deep rupture between them as there has surely been a rupture with God himself and so when he looks at me like that Does he love me? When he looks at my body like that, does he love me or does he just want me now? Does she love me? Or does she just want to use me? And that sense of vulnerability and openness that nakedness embodies has gone. You can't trust people with your most intimate self. You need to Cover up, hide one another. That's just the beginnings. Because in a moment when God himself, verse 8, look, comes walking 
Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord. It's a bodily thing. It's an instinctive. It's not just something you think, shame. It's how you respond to the voice of God who has seen you and knows you for what you are and what you did and what has happened. And the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, exposed, seen. So I hid. The woman gave, you gave me says the man. The serpent, says the woman. But it's no good. It, It doesn't wash. They know they've been found out. They wanted the king's crown. They wanted to be more. And they know they've ended up less. And they've been exposed for what, not simply what they've done, but now what they are. Usurpers of God's crown and rebels in his garden. And They just want to hide. Shame has tapped them on the shoulder. And for the rest of human history, he will never entirely go away. And it'll spread out from that act of guilt into other areas of our humanity as the fall breaches and disrupts our relationship with creation that now works against us. And it breaches and disrupts our relationship with each other as we distrust and work against one another. And in this broken, fallen world, we struggle with not being good enough, not being enough for God's world, no longer fitting, no longer being in the right place. And our hearts know it. They know it, don't they? What did my dad do, do you think? He was outraged. He was shamed by me. What did he do? He marched us down to the shop. What a blessing to have a dad like that. He marched us down to the shop and he called Mr. Whiting out and I was mortified as he said, you will tell him what you did and you will apologize and you will repay And um, I'd imagine Mr. Whiting, with a twinkle in his eye, gave my father a wink, and he pronounced the absolution. And my guilt gradually went away, because guilt does. But the shame never has. Because you've been seen. You were found out. And so in all kinds of ways, as the fall does its work in undermining our fit with God's creation now, we're not good enough in all kinds of ways, not particularly connected with guilt. I wasn't good enough when they were picking the football team and I was on the end. I wasn't good enough when I failed the 11 plus that I was talking about last night. And my grandmother said, well, our kind of people, we're not good enough. That's our script. And there's a generation of kids brought up with that script. Our kind of people don't do that kind of thing. We're not good enough. That is a ramification of the fall which inhibits 
diminishes the human spirit as God gave it and says, you never do that. And I wasn't good enough even when I got to medical school. And then when I became a professor. Shame, our unwelcome companion from the fall. Does any of this ring a bell with anybody? This feeling? Imagine it does. So what are we going to do about this unwelcome guest in our lives? Well, I want to suggest two things, and these are going to occupy the rest of this talk. First, we've got to face it. We've got to face our shame. I'm going to talk in a moment about all the things we do to try and um, to run away from it, to hide from it. And it may be that you'd think, well, I don't know, this guy's obsessing a bit. You know, he seems to be a bit preoccupied with himself. Uh, I don't feel any of this, if, I, if I'm honest. It may be that you've just got too good at running away and hiding and camouflaging it because we can train each other. We can train our children to be confident and to know their place in the world. And so we don't quite get this because we've been trained to keep these this experience of shame at bay. But we need to face it. If we're going to deal with it, we need to face it. And then second, having faced our shame, we need to apply the medicine of the gospel to it. That's what we're going to do. Face our shame. Well, how do we do that? Well, I want to talk about four ways that we have of running away from our shame, of defending ourselves from it. Four worldly ways that we attempt to cope. Okay, And uh, the first one is being noticed. You can get yourself noticed. That can hold shame at bay. Um... Adam Smith. Anyone knows who Adam Smith is? Who is Adam Smith? No, you know, David. Who, who else was? Who's Adam Smith? Yes, please. Yes, he was an economist. He's called the father of modern economics, isn't he? A Scotsman. And uh, in 1798, he wrote these words. He, it was in The Wealth of Nations. He, he said this, To what purpose is all the toil and bustle of this world? What is the end of greed and ambition? Can, we, the light, can you see this? And of the pursuit of wealth and power and preeminence. What drives us on, he says, in economic endeavor? Um, is it supply food and drink and clothes? No, you can go down to Primark, get a cheap pair of jeans. No matter how poor you are. So he says, what then are the advantages of that great purpose of human life, which we call bettering our condition here's what he came up with to be observed to be attended to to be noticed Smith discerned that there's something in the human spirit and we would see in that an echo of Eden where Lucifer says you shall be as gods you shall be as gods that's the longing that we still cling to in our fallenness to be as gods to be noticed, to be seen, to be above. 
And so we work and we position and we maneuver and we get stuff and we make our body image as, as attractive as we can to be noticed. One of the ways we, we do that is get ourselves into hierarchies because if you can get to the top of the hierarchy, uh, it feels very nice indeed for a while. And this is the quest for status. Status. That's my relative position in a social hierarchy. You know, it's said that psychology began in a, uh, by, in a chicken coop by people observing that chickens seem to follow rules in quite a bit of their behavior. And so psychology grew out of the rather simple idea that maybe human beings seem to follow rules in the way they go, you see. So I don't know, there might be something in it. Is, have you ever strutted your stuff? I mean, I am now being a bit cocky. Have you ever taken somebody under, under your wing? You know, lots of these terms have come from the chicken coop or yard. Or, uh, anyone ruffled your feathers? Um, but the commonest one is probably what? Pecking order. Pecking order. And we like to get ourselves into hierarchies. And it's just great if you can get yourself to the top. It may be more a male thing. This may be something more men identify with than, than women. Um, but I wouldn't want to over-stereotype that. But, but it, it is something often men. And, and of course, fit, being at the top is intoxicating in terms of what it does for the human heart who wants to be as gods, to be noticed, to be seen. Don't underestimate how important it is just to be seen. It's an occupational hazard of standing up here. Clergy, vicars, pastors. It's an occupational hazard that they don't, we don't face squarely enough. But it comes in all sorts of other ways, doesn't it? Conversation, Weaving in that little bit of extraneous information about you that wasn't really necessary, but it just got you back up in the ranking of this conversation. We've all done it. The insecurity, being outmaneuvered, outclassed by somebody else in looks or by dress or by appearance, and the need to go out and get that and get ourselves up the rank. And, of course, if you can get status, it comes with all kinds of of benefits and social goods, bigger car, um, bigger parking space, nice computer, PA. But, but e even those things in themselves open the door to more status and better feelings. It's really just the being noticed. It's the going through the door and, and the little lady stepping back and saying, oh, sorry, sir, come through. And you say, oh, no, please don't. You mean thank you that you did. Because I, my heart knows it. I want, we crave. And if we're honest with ourselves, that's what drives so much human endeavor. And Adam Smith spotted that a long time ago. So it makes us feel good. Now, the only problem with being noticed is that being at the top there also makes us feel very bad. At the same time, it's a deeply conflicted place to be. Why is that, do you think? Why, why at the same time as feeling so, so good up there, why does it feel so bad? Any ideas? Sorry? 
there's a loneliness, isn't there, at the top? Anything else? Anxiety, insecurity, because how long are you going to stay, stay there before you fall? Uh, because those little chaps at the bottom, if you notice, they don't look as if they're enjoying themselves. And they're younger than you. Some of them are a bit brighter, if you're honest. And they've got years ahead, and they've been watching, and they're working and they're getting more equipped and more competent. And you're finding it harder to keep up. And sooner or later, you will drop down that ladder. And the question then is, now who are you? If you are running from shame, because shame makes me feel diminished. It makes me feel a nothing. I've been found out. So if I'm running to get status... And then suddenly I retire. And they said nice things for you at your retirement party. But a week later they've almost forgotten who you are. Believe me, that is true, friends. The world moves on much, much faster than we like to think. Now who are you? And that's the problem with striving to be noticed. How long can you keep up? In the end, it's a treadmill. It's a treadmill. It's a cul-de-sac. It's an end to nowhere. So being noticed, being busy. This is another occupational hazard for pastors. uh, But also for most of us at work or at home with the kids, with family. Being busy. Momentum is meaning. The more I achieve, the more I do, the better I feel. I just keep at at bay that, that notion of being out of control and, and, and that, that sense of shame that can come creeping back. So let's do more. And sometimes that drivenness, that drivenness comes from a deep place. I, I, again, talking with, with folk in, in a mentoring relationship, people often want to talk about busyness. And the key question I eventually arrive at, and I always do arrive at that question, is, but do you want to change? Because lots of folk... They complain, we complain about being busy, but do we really want to change? Not, not, in, not that I see very much, because being busy is serving a hidden purpose. It's defeating, holding at bay shame. And sometimes that shaming comes from a deep place in our own heart. I remember talking to a, a girl and her mother's... Um, project in life was to run her down she said that was my mother's kind of project to diminish me and 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 she said you know I could never do this the high jump what a sport she said because what is what do they do once you get over the bar and all that training and you get over the bar what's the next thing they do they always move it higher My mother was like that. No matter how high I jumped, what I achieved, no matter how high I worked for her, she always moved it higher. And I was never good enough. And that's why I'm so driven. Being busy, it's another treadmill, isn't it? Because you never, they always move the bar higher. You never get there. It's a cul-de-sac, it's dead end. Or, what about this one? Here's, another, here's our third way. Control. If we can get control things. Here's a man who knew about control. And apologies for bringing him up to Scotland. But here we go. Uh, 
Who's this? Johnny Wilkin epitomizes control, doesn't he? And Johnny Wilkinson, if you remember, he became a national treasure in 2003 when he did that famous dropped goal 26 seconds before the end of the match and won the World Cup for England over Australia. And this was everything that little boy who'd walked out onto that pitch when he was aged eight had longed for. And he, he was paraded through the streets and he was taken into Buckingham Palace and then see Tony Blair. And he was a national treasure. And yet in his book, in his biography, autobiography, Tackling Life, he says this. He says, within hours of that kick, hours, not days, not months, within hours, I was tumbling out of control. You see, I'm only as good as my last kick. I've been, I've been afflicted with a powerful fear of failure. We might say shamed. And I don't know how to free myself from it. And there's another treadmill. Getting control, getting our ducks lined up, being very clear, all the points, all the doctrine in a row, getting everything. If we can just get this, if that's perfect, it means I'm perfect. I keep my shame locked out of the way. Well, only as good, virtuous as my last kick. Um, there it is. Now, along came in the 1950s and 60s a new movement. What was it called? Self-esteem movement. And the self-esteem movement, which, which I wrote this, this book about, um, it said lots of good things, really. It said exactly what I've just been saying. It said the problem with staking your sense of value and worth... If, if you stake it on those, those things, they are contingent things. In other words, you can't depend on them. They are out of your control. So in the end, you're going to be running. It's a cul-de-sac. It's no good. So they, they were right in their diagnosis. that You don't stake your sense of significance on these things. But I think they were wrong in their cure. Their cure was to say, don't stake who you are on achievement or status. You say what your worth is. You say it. Come on, say it now. It's easy. You just say, I am significant. I am worthy. Um, boost your self-esteem. Declare it. Speak out of your unique humanity. Nobody else can do it if you don't do it for yourself. And this is a compelling vision that, that you take doses of this stuff and boost it up and I love me and I'm powerful and unlimited and certain and strong. Just say it. You see, it's better. I attract positive people into my vents, into my heart now. And if you're a religious turn of mind, you can recruit God to your ego project because here's a little bib you can put on your kid which says, I may be little, but to God I'm big stuff. I saw one, when God made me, he was just boasting. I kid you not. And so, 
you say what your worth is, is, is really seductive because it goes right back to the, the garden as Lucifer comes along and says, you shall be as gods. You can do it. You say. You say. You set the rules, good and evil. You declare the boundaries. You're special. Well, of course, the big question is, does it work? I mean, it's been a great project. We've, schools have whole school self-esteem policies. We've injected this into popular culture at lots of levels, haven't we? Does it work? A resounding no. All of the evidence is that this is a failed project. And I, we could spend a long time stacking up the, the evidence. But here, let me just, in a nutshell, tell you about one randomized trial that psychologists carried out in Ontario, in Canada. What they did was they took a bunch of people and they allocated them randomly to three groups. The first group got lots of cards with these kind of statements on them. And if you're interested, you can go to the American Self-Esteem Society and download your own source of these little cards to help boost yourself up. And they gave them these and they said, we want you to have a little kind of selfie quiet time for three months. And what you will do is uh, for half an hour a day, meditate exclusively on these statements and affirm them for yourself. Okay? And we'll see how you're getting on three and six months later. And I've, I'm skirting over this. I've written it up in, in the book in a bit more detail. And then the second group, they gave them the same cards. And they said, we want you to have a little quiet time. But in this one, look at these statements. And, and your project is to say, to ask, in what sense is this true of me? And in what sense is this not true of me? Okay, so it's an evaluative project. The third group were told to do nothing at all in particular. And then they followed them up three and six months, and they compared the findings. Now, if we look at the first group and the people who had gone into the project with, with low self-esteem, the first group, the ones who get the cards and have got to meditate, what do you think they're feeling at the end of three months and then six months? Are they feeling better about themselves? No. They actually felt worse compared with the other two. Why? Because it's hard to believe your own propaganda. Especially if you've got low self-esteem. Why should you believe your own propaganda? Because in the end, that is all this is. And our humanity, as we touched on last night, cries out to be defined, to be spoken, to for our identity to be affirmed from outside of ourselves. Not these mocking voices that say you make yourself up. And we know that. And so we run away from shame, either in self-esteem, in control, but none of it works. And, and in the end, we, we need to recognize that at times our hearts speak to us gospel truth, our hearts in our shame, in our hiddenness, they tell us that something's wrong. We don't fit. And we need to face our shame and, and bring it to the gospel. That's our first bit. So, Second, what is the medicine of the gospel? How does it work? 
Jesus bore our shame. The writer to the Hebrews said, he said this, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith, for the joy set before him, enduring the cross, scorning the shame. Scorning the shame means he didn't shrink back from bearing its weight on the cross. He not only drew the sting of death, he bore the full stigma, the weight of shame. It means he didn't shrink back from appearing to have been found out. It's what it looked like. King of the Jews, you've been found out. That's why you're up there. He didn't shrink back from being stripped naked. Decorously, we, we ply little loincloths in, in our pictures. We can't know for sure, but in all likelihood, this was a shaming thing. You were stripped naked, and then you were splayed out for the world to see. You've been found out for what you are. King of the Jews, look at him. He didn't shrink back from someone who appeared not to have made it. King of the Jews. See where that ended up. And he bore that shame so that the promise of Isaiah would finally, it was made of course to to the people of Israel, but finally, it would be finally honored and fulfilled in the new Israel. You will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will never be put to shame or disgraced to everlasting. So what, what I, the medicine of the gospel tells us to release our shame to him. He, he doesn't shrink back from it. He, he didn't say that's the bit you get to keep. I'll take the guilt. You get to keep the shame bit because we want to teach you a lesson and as he hangs there naked despised and mocked he says to us there's no reason to hide anymore come on out his voice called to Adam in judgment his voice calls to us in love what did we read last night um, see what great love the Father has lavished on us. 1 John 3, that we should be called. He calls us. He thought of that. He calls you, my child, mine. And so here's the, here's the thing. Will you let God love you, not just in, in your guilt? Will you let him love you in your shame? Will, will, you, will you be his child, not in a way that, that deals with your guilt, but in a way that deals with your shame? You know, with that sense of that deeper feeling of just not being right. Will you allow him to love you, to name you as his child in that shame? There's no hiding. Let him love you. And 
Once again, will we hear his call to bear his image well in our bodies on this earth, to be creative and fruitful and holy because that image is being reformed in the image of Christ, transfigured in the image of Christ. Are we ready to bear that image? So here's the thing. We know that Jesus died in our place for the things we've done. We apply the gospel to guilt feelings, but do we know forgiveness for being the kind of people who do that kind of thing? Because you are forgiven. He calls you his son. My father looked at me in judgment, and anger, and shame. Your father looks at you in love, compassion, acceptance. And he knows that you're made of dust. And he knows what a struggler you are and I am. And he knows how we struggle with these feelings. And he has compassion. He knows that. He still loves you. Calls you his son. Well, I want to end on a practical note. Because the question is, I've got two things to say, then we're we're done. Will listening to this message this morning change anything? That's the question I want you to ask yourself. Is it going to change anything? You got some more facts in your head, didn't you? We've got some more thoughts to dwell on. What's going to change? Because the reality is on Monday morning, a bit of you knows that if you're a teacher, you get called in to see the headmistress. And she gives you some feedback on something you have done that really isn't good enough. You're going to be all over the place. You won't be thinking, well, of course, what, what I need to come to terms with here is, is that I have some things to learn as a teacher and maybe I'm not all that good in this area of my life right now. No, no, it won't be that. It'll be what this tells me is that I'm not a good enough person, not a teacher. It won't be about being a teacher. It'll be about being a person. And many of us will feel diminished and shamed by that or angry and defensive And looking for justification. We'll do anything other than face that. Because this says something about us. As a person, we're so vulnerable still. And so, will having heard this this morning make any difference to that? That's the question. Sounds great, doesn't it? But how's it going to change our heart for for Monday? I I sometimes... um, uh, describe what, what's happening and it's, it's not an, an original uh, illustration it's from a psychologist called Jonathan Haidt but uh, I sometimes describe the human heart as, as a man on an elephant and uh, the man on the elephant is our rational bit the thinking bit the bit that's been trying to pay attention this morning and note down one or two things and try and get our thoughts lined up and say I must hang on to that he's the little man on top He's trying to steer a big, big guy underneath. And the big guy is all of the under the bonnet bits of who we are, deep in our unconsciousness. The writer of the Proverbs said, the purposes of man's heart are deep waters. It's the deep waters of the heart that's the elephant. 
He's got a long memory. He likes habits. He's used to doing things this way. And he does it over and over and over. So when you get um, that feedback on Monday morning, your head's trying to remember what I said, but your elephant, he's made up his mind already. This is about me as a person. I'm being diminished and degraded here. And I need to get on the defensive. I just go home. It's the elephant who moves first, you see. And the little man's trying to say, no, no, let's just... But the elephant's off, you see. Or when we just have nothing to do, it's the elephant that moves our arm out to pick up our phone. You don't think about it. You just pick it up, don't you? You don't think, I'm going to check my phone. Have anyone ever done this or am I the only one? Your hand goes out and you find the phone's in it, ready, and you're wanting to check stuff. It's the elephant doing that. It's habit. It's being formed in your heart. Or, I don't know, if you don't like broccoli, someone puts broccoli in front. If you really don't like it, is that your little man on top evaluating the broccoli? No, it's the elephant. Move, because he's used to broccoli and his dislike of it. And, and what, we're, what we're asking the elephant to do this morning is, is we've said to the little man on top, because I've been talking mostly to the little man on top, and we've said, you've been going to that watering hole over there for years, but, you know, look at that one over there. You can't quite see it, but it's a wonderful watering hole. I want you to start heading there for your daily water. It's purer, it's cleaner, This place is drying up. It's getting diseased. That's the place to go. And he sees what you say, and he's got the point. He says, we're going there from now on. Think the elephant's going to go? Next morning when he climbs on, where's the elephant going to go? Long memory. The elephant doesn't do detailed. He hasn't got all the thoughts lined up. And he is susceptible to emotions and feelings and the big picture. He doesn't know what the heck you're talking about, this watering hole, because he knows there's one there, and it works, and there's a well-beaten path to it. And you're asking him to go through the shrubs and the clamber over stuff, and he's all risky and new. No, we'll stick with what we've got. So, how do we move the elephant? And that's a big question. And, and that's why our preachers scratch our heads and, and, and we, because we know that just giving facts isn't, isn't enough for the human heart. We've got to move the heart. We want the heart to be moved. And so the preacher will, will try and illustrate what he's saying with pictures because he wants to show the elephant where he's going. The elephant deals in the bigger picture. He sees. He wants to, to, to see what you're talking He deals in feelings, so the preacher will tell stories that help you connect and say, oh, that happened in my childhood. I remember that. And you're being drawn into the story, and the elephant's getting involved now. This is what Jonathan Edwards taught about. He, he says, preaching isn't giving people facts. If, if, if you just want to give people facts, give them a commentary. It'll be far better than what you can do. He said, You've, you want to... 
the task of the preachers is to move the affection, to draw the affections, to move the heart in gratitude and love to God, which is its true home. So the preacher doesn't just tell people about heaven. He paints a picture of that heaven so that the elephant wants to go there. And so part of this is about firing our imagination. And I want to challenge you. It's not just the preacher's job. It's your job. You say, I, want, I like some of what he was saying this morning or what we read in the Bible. I want to bear God's image better. I want to bear it well. I want, I want to inhabit this and to live out of this deep truth of my identity in Christ. And I'd say, yes, get the facts. But... But then put your imagination to work. What does that look like, bearing God's image for you? And there are lots of ways. I, I know Alan will be thinking about this in the work um, seminar today. You, you can switch on your computer at work and start getting anxious and wondering what the emails are going to show. Or, or you can switch it on and as it begins to whir into action... You, you commit your day to God and you say, help me, Lord, to bear your image well now as I govern and rule this world because one day that's what I shall do again in glory. And I want, to, I want to, to aim well to that destiny and I want to learn to govern well now. Help me to bear your image well in my work. If you're a mum... You're cleaning up the sick in the car on the way home. Help me, Lord, to bear your image well. The one who, the one who stooped lepers and healed and brought order to this broken world and gave us a picture again what it is. And when we're entrusted with those kids' hearts, help, help me, Lord, to bear your image well as I, as I remember how Jesus told stories and captured people's hearts. There's a man with a hundred sheep, and every day he counted them. And the elephant's listening. It's a good story. It's an easy. It, it's building a picture. It reaches his heart. And bear God's image well as, you, as you're called to, to bring this new life into the world. Be fruitful. Stand in his image. Take pride in being an image bearer in the, in the right kind of way you've fallen in love with a lovely girl and you just want to marry her marry her be fruitful and if God blesses you in that way bring new life into the world and be a proud father bearing God's image well in that calling put your imagination to work of what it means to bear the identity of Christ to be in Christ and just for one or two of us here, it's as simple as this. You've got to let God love you. It's where it starts. Some of us, you're running. You're running on that treadmill. Treadmills, like all idols, whether it's achievement, status, whatever it is, they always want more and more until they've got everything. You've got nothing. Get off. Just let God love you in your guilt, in your shame, and bring it to the cross. Let him have it. So that's the first thing, holy imagination. It's how we begin to inhabit our, our identity. 
Second, and this is finishing, I promise now. Learn to judge the actions and not the person. And I've got a whole kind of chapter on that in, in the book where I try to grapple with, with this. But um, if you notice, the teacher who goes in on Monday, the mistake she made was to say, just because I may not be, I've got things to learn as a teacher. And I, compared with my colleagues, I've, I'm down this pecking order. I'm, I've, I've clearly got some things to learn. Instead of evaluating the behavior, she's evaluated herself. I'm no good as a person. This diminishes me. That's why I need to fight back. We're confusing our personhood with our achievements or other facets of our identity. Don't stake your identity on any of those. Evaluate them, but stake your identity. The linchpin is in being loved as God's son or daughter, his child. There's a little chap in, in my orbit uh, who I know, and um, his, his mother sent me an email headed Little Glyn. He's just five, coming up six. And, um, and his mother told me that she'd overheard him playing his um, a relative at uh, cards, and this relative, and, and, and he, he, it's Uno, it's very easy, but he's very good at it. And he was beating her every time. And um, and this relative said, goodness me, let's call him George. You're amazingly good at cards. That's amazing. And, and do you know what he said? She said, he said, I am good at cards to, to this person, aren't I? But that doesn't make me a more important person than others. That's where the little glim bit comes in. Because indeed I had been talking to him and what I'd been saying was, isn't it great, George? You can do stuff well, and you can be the best in your class, that thing. And you can take joy in it and know that God takes joy in your doing that thing. But don't think for a minute it makes you a more important person than those other people who aren't so good at that. Because what you are as a person is that God loves you, and there's nothing more important than that. So keep... And I, I thought Crumbs is a bit young for this. And I'm not sure how much he understands it, but he's taking it in. Now, as God's image bearers, can we do that for our children? First friends, we've got to do it for ourselves. Stop evaluating our actions in terms of our personhood. Our personhood is that we are image bearers. Elephants, are we listening? Fire our imagination. I'm just going to pray for a moment. You will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. It'll never keep tapping you on the shoulder, shame. Uh, but in the end, the vision we have is that you will never be put to shame, Isaiah promised. And we won't. We won't, finally. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your holy word. Sometimes we love digging into it. We love thinking about it. And we love it when we sense your spirit coming and, and speaking. And we, we know that if, if our deeper hearts are to change, he must take our hearts and work your word deep, deep 
into them. And we ask that he'll do that now. We've heard Holy Spirit come and help us to make this word dwell richly among us, we pray. Pray for each other. Pray for the struggling. And we ask that each one of us will know that we're loved by you to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We've got a couple of minutes, and I'd, I'd love to, I don't want to in a way destroy the, the moment, but it would be nice if we have one or two questions and thoughts, and we, we may not take them all, but uh, it will help me pick up one or two perhaps in our final session tonight. But um, any, any, do you want any, any comments or any thoughts? And to be honest, you know, if you think, well, I don't really agree with that, just say so. I, you know, it's, it's a free world. We chip in with our, our thoughts, but or questions, clarification, anything? Yes. The, the randomized trial. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I, I offer, it's a great question that. Yeah, yeah. Can I just... Yeah. And, and it links with, I can get this, well, what, what, you know, I, I can see how this works in a Christian context. Hallelujah, thank God. We can say our images, our, our identity. But, but if in a secular context, what, what does one say? You know, and that's a great point. I'll just leave that question hanging there. There's another one just to help me um, see where we're going. Any more, another question, comment? Yes. Yeah. Ah. Thank you. It's close to my own heart. That's that you know, you look at kids and um I'm gonna be talking a bit about this in the third session on you see I think the whole the sexual revolution it's, it's brought a kind of freedom to adults at the cost to kids, I think. That, that's its issue, big issue. And so telling a better story in response to the sexual revolution, I think for us, is recovering our vision, God's vision for kids. And he loves kids. So if we begin to look at kids, we, we begin to look at the world through their eyes. And, and I've certainly, it's, it's helped me to think in terms of that, that illustration, if I go home and, and this woman says she's my wife and they're very smiley and seems to think they belong in my world, but who is she? How, how do you function in that kind of a world with that degree of instability? And of course, in those very early years, one, two, three, you are developing the mental structures of trust and predicting how the world works and all that's going into place. And, and if you've not had that, those structures are, are not well formed. You can see how, as I said last night, how hard, or your identity in Christ, that, that thought drops onto 
structures of, of, of feeling that, that make, they don't quite what to do with that. You know, can I trust that? Who, who's he saying this? Um, and, and my mind's on something else anyway now because my attention span is low. And that's why, um, you know, I think the gospel gives us this picture of preaching in the body of Christ as we minister to one another and over time we bring degrees of healing. But in the end, these things will be fully resolved when the Lord comes again and makes everything new. And we'll, we'll struggle to different degrees, don't we? Yeah. Going back to this other point here. I mean, that is a real issue about um, how we, you know, what one says in a secular en- environment. Um, what, one's, what one says in a secular environment. Um, I, I think what, what one can do, nevertheless, is um, what, what you want to try and do is get kids off off themselves you see what what we're trying to do is we respond to negative thoughts about ourselves by getting us to think about ourselves um and that that's problematic i i I think the best psychology would say get the mind thinking about being part of a story bigger than me and having a, a significant place in this story bigger than me but the story isn't about me, you know. And so, for example, Jennifer Crocker, who's a secular psychologist, who's done quite a bit of work that also shows how this absorption with self-esteem just draws, it's, it's this internal loop, it draws us back in on ourselves in self-doubt. She's shown how it reduces empathy, for example. Your ability to feel for other people, if you're into self-esteem in a big way, is reduced because you're so busy thinking about yourself. You don't pay attention to others. So Crocker's done a lot of work, and she says this is a dead end, this self-I-esteem-myself project. She says the self needs to flourish as part of a story bigger than itself. And we'd say, wow, that, you know, that, I think we've got a story bigger than ourselves. But she, as a secularist, she, she's, a, she's into ecology. So she would say being an eco-warrior orientates the self beyond their own self-fulfillment. It, it's about fulfilling self as a byproduct of serving a bigger cause. And we'd say, yeah, mm, you know, eco-warrior. But in a way, wouldn't we prefer, rather than a narcissist, someone who's out there saying, how can we make the world a, a, a more beautiful place? We'd say, well, that's a bit more reflecting of God's image, the residues, the, the echoes of God's image in us. So I think you can affirm that, actually, whilst in a secular environment, whilst saying, but it's actually just only a a bit of it. Character as well. Um, Because the self-esteem project is is imploding, really, um, if you've been on the London Underground recently, you'll notice there's posters with statements of character from the philosophers there. And there are now character projects in schools to try and develop virtue. And again, we'd say this is, in the end... It's works. It, it's not going to deliver salvation. But would we want our kids at school to be learning about perseverance and um, you know longer-term goals and empathy? Would we rather they learn about that than me? Me. So again, I think we would give some assent to that while saying it's the gospel that draws all these things together in, into a into a bigger picture that really does make sense. I, I think so. Yeah. I think we better have been given strict orders by the man who always likes everything to be on time.
uh, by David here to stop. <laughs> so we better stop just there, David. Have you got anything you'd, you'd need to say?